chapter 16. Judges chapter 16, we'll be covering verses 4 through 22. And the title is tonight, Samson Destroys Himself. Samson Destroys Himself. Uh, after this, we'll have one more study uh, in the character of Samson. So uh, we're going to look at the, the last scenes of Samson's uh, life here. Again, as we come to the end of our character study of Samson, we have the final scenes of Samson's life. They're dark times. And, and it's also a glaring, a glaring warning about the dangers of walking by sight and not by faith. Samson's lack of concern for his calling and for his character has led him down a one-way street. And, and there's no return. Samson could say at the end of his life, like Saul did, man, I played the fool. I really messed up. And even though Samson was a strong man, he was terribly weak at the same time. And his weakness got the best of him. And, and, and we, you know, from these studies, we, we need to learn these things and not just say, wow, you know, he messed up and he was really this and that. that these things are written for our admonition, for our, you know, to learn from and to grow from. Things that we should do, things that we shouldn't do. Uh, but again, uh, even though he was a strong man, he was terribly weak, and his weakness got the best of him. His weakness finally resulted in having his hair cut off, which was the main sign of his Nazarite calling. And along with the loss of his hair, he lost his strength as well. Up to this point, in spite of all of his unacceptable behavior, he could say, no razor has touched my head since I was born. But his lack of discipline finally led to a razor eliminating the significant sign of his special relationship to God, which was his hair. And this resulted in bringing him into the captivity of the oppressing Philistines from whom he should have instead been delivering Israel from them. Now let's look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 16. And it reads, Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you, Delilah, 1,100 pieces of silver. This is the third unholy woman that Scripture tells us Samson pursued. The first was the woman of Timnah, who he married, but it was a short marriage. The second was the harlot of Gaza, and now here it's a woman named Delilah. Even though her name means weak or pining one, she definitely wasn't that. Not in the way that she dealt with Samson. She was very aggressive and she was very forceful. And she was obviously not a good woman. Now we don't know for sure if Delilah was an Israelite or a, Palestine, a Philistine. But one thing is for sure, her character was pretty evil as her behavior will show us here in the text. So Samson didn't have any business keeping company with her. And as mentioned before, Samson's big problem in life was his romantic pursuits of unholy women. They proved to be his ruin, just as it's been for a lot of men. And even though these experiences with the unholy women resulted in, in considerable problems for Samson, 
he never learned his lesson. Even though he was betrayed by the first ungodly relationship and was nearly trapped into losing his life because of the second ungodly woman, he still pursued without care, without a care in the world, this wicked woman Delilah. He had let his sensual appetites blind him about the dangers involved. And any time a man lets his sensual appetites control him, whatever they are, he will become blind to the danger of his pursuit of the immoral woman. And in his hot pursuit of sensual pleasure with the immoral, uh, immoral girl, he's going to ignore all the warning signs, even though they've been seen at every turn. He blindly goes after her, as Solomon said in Proverbs 7.22, like an ox going to the slaughter. And his problems are going to be many. As it says in Proverbs 22, verses 26 to 27, because she has been the ruin of many, many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. Proverbs 5 through 7, Solomon covers a lot of territory about the immoral woman. And he's speaking to his son and really to all men. Proverbs 5, 1 through 8, as the the proverb begins here, where Solomon begins to speak of the immoral woman, listen to what he says to his son. He says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen carefully to my wise counsel. Then you will show discernment, and your lips will express what you have learned. And her mouth is smoother than oil. I'm sorry, and for the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is a bitter, she's as bitter as poison, as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave, for she cares nothing about the path to life. She staggers down a crooked trail and doesn't realize it. So now, my sons, listen to me. Never stray from what I'm about to say. Stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Those are the first eight verses of Proverbs 4 in Solomon teaching his son about dealing with immoral women. And a man can never be too careful in this area. Now the lords of the Philistines were the chief rulers of Philistia. And there were five of them. And each one represented and was the ruler of one of the main, uh, five main cities of, of the Philistines. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. They wanted some important information about Samson. They wanted to know, as verse 5 says, where, is his, where does his great strength lie and by what means may we overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. The Philistine knew Samson's weakness was women, but they didn't know where his strength came from. Samson's weakness was well known, and the crafty Philistines didn't hesitate to take advantage of his weakness and to use it to find out where his strength lay. Now, in knowing about his weakness for women, they knew that, that a good plan would be to use a seductive woman to get the information that they were looking for about his strength. Then, and they already had a heads up on, on, on this. They had a heads up for their plan because in Samson's marriage to the Philistine girl in Timnah, it was proven by the male wed- some of the male wedding guests that an enticing woman could get important information out of Samson. So now the Philistine lords would try the same method. 
Governments all over the world have recognized that immoral people are a security risk. And Samson's behavior here proves it. Delilah seduces the immoral man uh, into giving out vital secrets that affect the strength of his country. Governments do a lot better with agents who live morally upright because they're not the security risk uh, as great as the immoral one. Big money is offered to these harlots to encourage them to get important information, political information, from those that they seduce. That's the way it was with Delilah. The price that she was offered to get the information from Samson was very high. Now, she, was, she would re- receive in total 5,500 pieces of silver. Again, that's 1,100 pieces of silver from each of the five Philistines' lords. Now, this would be a lot of money for that day. And there's really a, a wide range between the varied amounts. I was looking up, you know, what the, the silver shekel would be worth in that day. And it ranged from hundreds to hundreds of thousands. So, nonetheless, it said that, that it was a large amount And it shows how big the problem was to the Philistines that they were willing to pay that much. Samson's iniquity and the Philistines' inquiry have definitely produced a set of circumstances that paved the way for the razor to enter Samson's life. And it said that the amount of money that Delilah would receive would take care of her for the rest of her life. But all of this could have been avoided for Samson. But Samson's determination on living in sin invited these difficult circumstances. Now, circumstances are not accidental or coincidental. We create them by the way we behave. And that's what Samson did. He created all of this mischief, mischief uh, uh, again, and mischief and, and problems and the things that he experienced because of the way he behaved. People who complain that they never get a break need to remember that if they want good circumstances, they have to behave in a proper way. Bad circumstances like Samson's are too often a result of one's disobedience. So it's no surprise that Delilah was very open to the offer of the Philistine lords that was made to her. So she went to work right away trying to sweet-talk Samson into telling her the secret of his strength. Look at verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with, what you may bound, with, and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Samson's response from the very get-go was to play games with Delilah. He teased her by appearing to tell her the secret of his strength. But we'll see later on that he ends up, he does end up telling her his secret. We see that, that problems involve lying. When she asked Samson what the secret of his strength was, he lied to her in order to hide the truth. He's in a difficult spot. And when we get into difficult spots, many times it involves lying created by our own circumstances. But it didn't take her long to figure out that Samson was lying when she repeated her complaint to him when she said in verse 10 and 13, you have mocked me and told me lies. And Samson lied to her three times about the secret of his strength. The first lie was in verse 7. The second time he lied to her was in verse 11. And the third time was in verse 13. All of this lying wasn't necessary. 
He didn't have to lie to her to keep her from knowing the truth about the secret of his strength. All Samson had to do was tell her, Look, Delilah, I can't tell you my secret, and it wouldn't be very wise for me to do so, so don't ask me anymore. But he didn't do that. You know, he did like so many do when they're facing the pressure of a difficult situation. He lied. But deceit is never acceptable in God's eyes. But people often think, hey, it's necessary. They think it's okay. It has to be done in order to successfully get out of a situation. Man has thought this way in every age. Abraham did it. Remember, Abraham thought he had to lie, and he lied twice about his relationship with his wife, Sarah, in order to save his own neck. The Gibeonites lied. They thought they had to lie to Joshua to save their lives. David thought he had to lie about his behavior uh, by pretending he was a madman in order to protect his life in Philistia. Peter also thought he had to lie about knowing Jesus to save his life. So again, a lot of people today think that they have to lie to get a better job, lie to get votes, lie to make sales, lie to keep them from getting in trouble. But it doesn't justify lying. Samson didn't have to lie either, neither. Um, And neither does anybody else. You see, if we feel like we're backed into a corner and the only way to get out is to lie, we only show weakness in our thinking. And it's not a good reason for lying. Lying only makes the situation worse. It's not the, the, the solution to any problem. Also, problems that we create ourselves involve pride. Samson's line about the truth shows a lot of pride. Lying to Delilah about what would take away his strength only gave him a chance to show off his strength when he would break out of the different bonds that he was put in by her, uh, that he was tied up by her. He could put on a big show and breaking out of each trap. He could snap the bowstrings quickly. He could break the ropes with no problem and he could tear out part of a loom that was only attached to his hair and walk away with it. And Samson probably didn't mind getting the oohs and the ah, oh, Samson, you're so strong. And, and you know, all those watching would just, just go, wow, this guy is something else. You know, they would watch the great feats, feats of his supernatural strength and, and pride would love every bit of it. But it would all be disgraceful, a disgraceful use of God's gift. Samson was prostituting his God-given gift for his own glory and his own boasting, and that never goes well with God. God does not bless us with talents and abilities to be used frivolously for our own self-glory. We are given gifts to use wisely and to do something worthwhile for God. Paul says we are to edify the body of Christ with the gifts that God gives us. So instead of using his strength to show off to Delilah and whoever might be there with her, he needed to use his strength to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. That was what he was supposed to do. But you see, when personal glory gets in the way, we never use our talents and gifts the way we should, be, we should use them. So it was very dangerous for Samson to play around the way he was doing that with the secret of his strength. And it was clear that Delilah was more than just curious about the source of his strength because she wanted to make him weak. 
So in hiding the truth, Samson flirted with danger in his third lie because he started now, notice, he got closer to the secret. He focused on his hair. You see, the more we lie and the more we get involved in our, we, we, we come closer and closer to, to, to coming to the, 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 the biggest part of it. He was playing a dangerous game with her. The way he's playing around here is like somebody playing close to the edge of a cliff. Hey, sooner or later, they're going to fall off. And there's a lot of Christians like this who, who walk as closely to the world as they can before they fall totally into the world and become like the world. You know, they, they come close to crossing the line into total worldliness. They will do questionable things. They will go to questionable places. They will keep company with questionable people. All of it at the risk of their moral and spiritual health. You know, many times, you know, I've been asked, hey, is it okay if I do this? And I wonder, well, why are you asking? You know, we want to stay as far away from the world as we possibly can. Is it, oh, is it, is it wrong if I do this? You know, what's wrong with this? And they'll argue about holy rules and regulations by saying, well, you know, I think you're being legalistic. Oh, we know times are different now. But like Samson, sooner or later, they end up with their character weakened, their strength lost, and they become enslaved by the enemy. Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And that's for those who say, well, times are different now. Maybe, but God is not. God's word is not different. Like Isaiah said, it stands forever. You know, John said in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And this is speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word. He is the Word. He, he has no beginning. He has no end. Jesus, is the, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. So it shows us that Jesus Christ is the word. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never changes. Yeah, the times do. People do. But God's word doesn't. And God's word is just as effective today as it was on the day it was first written. Here's the deal. If you play with fire long enough, you're going to get burned. And so far, Samson hasn't been burned. But, but he's getting close. His unholy behavior is going to bring about a three-alarm fire. Bring all the fire trucks you can. That razor is just about to come into his life. So after Delilah's been lied to three times in verses 8 through 14, notice what she says to him in verse 15. She says, then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. So her complaint was more than about Samson lying to her. Her biggest complaint was that Samson didn't show her love. That he didn't show her love because, you see, he wouldn't tell her the secret of his strength. But it was a baseless complaint. Not telling her the secret of his strength in no way proved that he didn't love her. But man, we're good at using that one. Our world uses false criteria for proving love. 
they set selfish, they set a, some selfish goal, and then if that person doesn't help them fulfill that goal, they accuse that person, oh, you don't love me. And, and for example, you know, setting some false criteria for proving love is the idea that you must do something immoral to prove your love. And, and, and guys and girls get involved in this, you know, when they're young, a lot. A boy tells a girl that, you know, hey, if you really love me, you'll have sex with me. So the girl really doesn't love the boy until she gives in to his request, according to him. That's what he says. The sad thing is, a lot of girls give in to this foolish argument, and they end up defiling their body and destroying their uprightness. Now, if the boy truly loved the girl, he wouldn't demand this. He wouldn't ask ask her to defile herself. Another example of false criteria for proving God loves us is the ungrateful but popular criteria for proving God's love is to ask Him to do something to prove His love for us. And people will tell God, if you love me, you'll make sure that I get this job. Oh, and if you love me, you'll heal me from my sickness. Or if you love me, God, you'll get me out of this financial situation. But hey, the thing is, God doesn't have to do anything to prove he loves us. He's already done that. He's proved his love for us at the cross of Calvary. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, the cross is such great proof of God's love that he doesn't have to do anything else to prove his love for us. For God so loved the world. If the cross is enough proof for you, you're very ungrateful and you'll never prove that God loves you. We need to watch out for this false criteria or using it for proving love. So Delilah's argument doesn't hold water. It was a selfish and deceitful way to destroy Samson. Not only that, she was a hypocrite because she really didn't love Samson. All she wanted to really do was ruin him, destroy him. And people usually set up false criteria for for love. People who do that usually are the ones who lack the love. Verses 16 and 17. And it came to pass when she uh, pestered, pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death, that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my, from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like other men. So he's finally done it. He says, She pestered me so much. Man, I just had to say something. I had to get her off of my back. I'm reading in between the lines. (laughs) Delilah put so much pressure on him that he finally broke. He said, I just can't take this anymore. and, And this is a picture of evil. Evil doesn't give up. And evil attacks persistently. And evil will use every trick in the book. And it will be nonstop in bombarding man or woman with temptation. And it will insist so much that the person will finally feel, I have, to, I have to give in. The pressure is seen everywhere. And you know, for us, we see it today in advertisements. For alcohol, that's, that's a big one. 
and, and many other things. You know, it, it, it tells you, oh, you can't live without this product. Oh, this product will make your life better. And, and this product will show that you have arrived. And, and this product will be, hey, make you accepted in life. It shows you've made it in life. And because sin is so aggressive and so intimidating, it would be wise for us not to give, in, give sin any unnecessary advantage. Temptation can be very strong, but we don't have to give in to it. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. He says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And I've heard many say, oh, nobody's ever gone through what I'm going through. Well, Paul just says here, it's no different from what others experience. It says, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And how many, oh, this is more than I can handle. No, God says it's not. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, again, like any scripture, and particularly this one, you know, when God tells us something like this, do we just read it and not believe it? Think about it. God tells us, hey, you know what? Whatever you experience, others have experienced it. It's not something that's strange to, to just you. And you know what? I'll give you a way out. You know, I, I'm to believe that. I'm to trust in what God says. At times, many people feel that nobody has ever been tempted the way they're, they're being tempted. Wrong. No matter what temptation you experience, there have been others who have had the same kind of temptation. I like what Oswald Chambers says. He says, Beware lest you think you are tempted as no one else is tempted. What you go through is the, com- is, is the common inheritance of the race, not something no one ever went through before. God does not save us from temptation, but he helps us in the midst of them. In, that's an important word. Many of these small words like in and, 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 you know, and, and, and but, they're, they're, they're powerful words in what God's word is telling us. He helps us in the midst of them. Hebrews 2.18, this is what it says of Jesus. It's for, it says, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? When he threw uh, Daniel's three friends into the fire furnace, he looks down there and he sees something fishy going on. And he says to his servants, hey, didn't we throw three men in, notice, in the furnace? He says, I see four men, loose, walking in. You know, when you read, pick and look at those little words. He says, I see four men walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of Man. In the fire. He doesn't keep us out of the fire. He joins us in the fire. That's what this shows here. Jesus was in the fire with those four guys. What's encouraging is that God will make a way of escape for you. God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. Dr. Hutton said this. God always makes a way of escape, and sometimes his way of escape is the king's highway and a good pair of heels, not high heels, okay? In other words, let the devil see your heels as you're running as hard as you can to get away from him. One of the reasons that we yield to temptation is that we are like the little boy in the pantry, 
His mother heard a noise because he'd, he'd taken down the cookie jar in the pantry. She said, Willie, where are you? He said, I'm in the pantry. She said, what are you doing in there? He said, I'm fighting temptation. <laughs> That's not the place you find temptation or you fight temptation. That's the place where you start running. You know, James 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, I've heard this many times. Hey, he says, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But they leave out that part before. It says, submit to God. Submit to God. Do what God says. Be obedient to him. Be obedient to his word. Then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan, remember, was being tempted. Jesus was being tempted to sidestep the cross. Satan said, Jesus, just bow down to me and worship me. And you know what? You don't have to go through all that pain and suffering of the cross. But each time Satan came at Jesus with a temptation, Jesus offered or, or, or you know, resisted with the word of God. He quoted scripture to him. And he fought the temptation with the word of God. And the word says in Matthew 4.11, after the four temptations and after four times Jesus came back with the word of God, we read, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. But notice when the devil left him. Jesus was submitting to the Father and he was fighting with the word of God. Satan cannot, cannot get victory over the word of God. That's the only weapon that we have against Satan. That's why Eve got, got you know, deceived in the garden. She began to listen to Satan and, and, and did not you know, stand upon the word of God. She knew what God said. God said, but Satan began to you know, tell her otherwise. She didn't stand on the word of God. And guess what? That was her only weapon. And when you lay down the word of God, you're laying down the only weapon you have against the devil. Blaming the devil for giving in. To sin only happens to those who deliberately put themselves into a situation where the devil has a great advantage. Stay away from people, places, and practices that are unholy, and temptation will lose a lot of its power. Samson's confession reveals the truth that we've already seen, and that is his strength was not the result of going to the gym or lifting weights or any other physical exercise. His strength was the result of a divine gift. That God gave him. The gift was entrusted to Samson and depended on him faithfully maintaining that outward Nazarite sign, his long hair, to continue having that gift. As long as his hair stayed upon his head, it showed that he still had the gift of God. Confessing his secret was to break his Nazarite vow, and it was disobedience. As Edersheim said, Samson had ceased to be a Nazarite in his heart before he ceased to be one outwardly. Verses 18 and 19. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and, and had him shave off the seven locks or braids of his head. Then she, became, uh, then she began to torment him and his strength left him. Once he fell asleep, she called for the barber. I got him. 
Samson went from being a giant in strength to, the ordinary, to an ordinary person in strength. The devil had been after those locks, those braids for some time, and now he's finally able to cut them off. Remember, the devil is always after, the, after our strength. He's always after our strength in order to make us useless in our fight against evil, to make us useless in the service of God. Every day there are Samsons all over the world, weakened in the church. We need to be careful about where we lay our head, where we spend our time, where we satisfy our appetites, who we keep company with, and where we allow our hearts to roam lest we allow the enemy of our soul to cut off our spiritual power and, and privileges. Verse 20 and 21. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. What a sad statement. Verse 21. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. And they bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. The Philistines took him, verse 21 says. Because now with his hair gone, he was helpless. Sin always takes away our strength. Paul told us about this truth. In Romans 5, 6, he says, For when we, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Sin weakens us. It makes us unable to walk uprightly. Samson is a perfect example of how sin can quickly, quickly weaken somebody. Verse 20 says here, notice, The Lord had departed from him. And that's a, that's a horrible thing to hear. Losing his God-given gift of strength was bad enough, but the greatest loss of all was the Lord. Now, man can stand the loss of wealth, health, family, job, anything else a lot better than he can stand the loss of the presence of God. The world, on the other hand, doesn't value God's presence. They value just about everything else as being more important than God's presence. They crowd God out of their lives as much as they can. You can see that on Sundays. Stores stay open. Businesses are open. Sports' biggest day is Sunday. Kids' sports leagues are on Sunday. Oh, we can't go to church today. My son has a game. You know, he's in this league. What are we saying? That sports are more important than coming to church. A movie, and some of you probably know what it is, especially the guys. Uh, it involved the NFL. And at this meeting, they were discussing how popular they had become and how Sunday was such a big money day for them. And I, I was blown away by what one of the guys in the movie in this meeting said. He said, speaking of Sunday football in the NFL, he says, the NFL now owns the day that used to belong to the church. Boy, he nailed it right on the head. All of these things, these cares of our life, they interfere with the worship and the service of God. It keeps people from God, but the world doesn't care. They prefer it that way. God is not important to them. 
But the day will come when it will matter to them. In eternity, it's going to matter to them more than anything else, but it will be too late then to do anything about it. God's departure from Samson was because Samson had departed from God way before God departed from Samson. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But it works the other way too. If you depart from God, he will depart from you. You put distance between you and God, and he'll do the same thing. But you cannot afford not having God's presence in your life. So our world today, which doesn't show much interest in God, will find out that God will show little interest in them. When they stand before the final, God at, uh, at, uh, final judgment seat of God, they will find God giving them the same treatment that they gave him. Hey, you didn't know me. I don't know you. They won't, he won't be interested in their presence in heaven, just like they weren't interested in his presence on earth. I mean, what a powerful warning Samson's life is in the disastrous loss of God's presence in, in a person's life. And I think the saddest thing of all is that Samson didn't know that God left him. Previously, the Philistines didn't know the secret of Samson's strength, but now Samson doesn't know the secret of his weakness. And it was bad enough that God had left him, but what made it even worse was that he wasn't even aware of it. And this lack of discernment is like being sick but not knowing you're sick so that you, you can't do anything about it. You, you, you can't go to get a remedy of this, for the sickness. Not having spiritual discernment is a sin problem, not an intellectual problem. And a lot of people have little spiritual discernment today, but most of them excuse it as being a lack of education. Well, I didn't know. But it's really sin, not lack of education. That sin is what blinds the spiritual eye and it makes spiritual discernment impossible. And because sin abounds among church members today, many of them have, have limited spiritual discernment. They don't know if the Holy Spirit was present, was present in a church service or not. They don't know if a message was good or bad. They don't know if a message was true or false or doctrinal or not. A.W. Tozer said something really heavy that has stuck with me for a long time. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. When Abraham and Isaac were on their way to Mount Moriah to offer up Isaac, Isaac asked Abraham, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac was wise enough to know, hey, something's missing here. But it's not like that with a lot of church members. John G. Butler said, most church members wouldn't know if the lamb was even needed, let alone missing. Verse 21. Then the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and they bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. That had to be an agonizing experience for Samson. But this was the cost that Samson grieved over the most, the losing of his eyes. And we get this from his prayer in verse 28. It says, Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. If Samson would have been more careful with his eyes, he wouldn't have lost them. 
It was his eyes that got him in trouble in the first place. Matthew Henry said the best preservative of the eyes is to turn them away from beholding vanity. And in verse 21, it also says that the Philistines took him down to Gaza. The enemy took him down, and he will always take you down. And the enemy would enjoy this because Gaza was where Samson first showed off his strength when he picked up the doors of the gates of the city and he hauled them off you know, while the Philistines were laying there and wait for him in the city. And this was probably a very humiliating experience for the Philistines at that time because they had plotted and they had planned and they thought, hey, we're going to catch him for sure. But Samson mocked them by getting up at midnight and not just busting down the gates or climbing over a wall, but he picked up those doors and the posts and, all, and everything, and he hauled them away, hauled them away up the hill to, to Hebron. It was a moment of great triumph and glory for Samson. But no more, because he will be hauled off now as a prisoner to Gaza and made to eat a lot of humble pie. Sin humbles us. The arrogant sinner will someday be brought down low. For a while, sinners, you know, uh, may be honored in the world. But when God is through with them, they'll be brought down very low. Righteousness is the way to lasting honor. Though the world ridicules righteousness and it ridicules the godly. But eternity is going to change all of that. The godly won't return to Gaza in dishonor. They are going to return to the world with honor to rule and to reign with Jesus. But the ungodly, they're not going to be anywhere around. Their day will be passed, and their honor will be gone forever. And also in verse 21, it says, Then the Philistines bound him with bronze fetters. Samson at one time could break away from any situation, but now he's fettered. That is, he's chained up. He's helpless. And now he's going to go where others want him to go. He's no longer a free man. When he was a free man, he could go wherever he wanted. He'd go to, but he went to places that he shouldn't have gone. He wandered off to Timnah to see a Philistine girl. Then he went through the vineyards where his Nazarite, that Nazarite vow advised him not to go there. And then he wandered off to keep company with a harlot. Notice, he abused his freedom, so he lost it. Freedom brings responsibility. And those responsibilities mean that we have to respect some restriction or we'll lose our freedom. You know, it sounds like a contradiction, but again, we have the freedom to drive, right? But there are responsibilities that we have to obey in order to continue to drive. Or our license will be taken away and we'll lose that privilege. If we know that true freedom, if we know what true freedom is, we won't think it's a contradiction. If you want the freedom that comes with good health, guess what? You have to not eat certain things. There's certain restrictions. If you want the freedom that comes with good morals, you have to restrict your behavior to only holy things. If you want a free society, you have to restrict the political principle and practices of the land to those that enhances a free society. Communism and socialism cannot be allowed to rule or your freedom your freedoms will be gone. Todd Starn says, you cannot have a socialist regime if you have a, a socialist regime if you have if you if you have free speech. I'm sorry, you cannot have a social socialist regime if you have free speech. 
He said, adding that socialists want to prohibit dissenting opinions, and we know that. Our trouble today is that people want freedom, but they don't want the responsibility that goes with it. They want to live wicked lives, but still enjoy the freedom of of righteousness. They want to abuse their body through drugs, alcohol, immorality, transgendering, and still enjoy good life. But Samson teaches us otherwise. His loss of freedom reminds us that we must use our freedom properly or we will lose it. Verse 21 also says he became a grinder in the prison. One commentator said grinding a hand mill was the hardest and lowest kind of slave labor. He was in prison. He was chained up and he's working hard in humiliating labor of grinding. A note in the Schofield Bible says, Grinding meal between millstones was the task of a beast or slave. Samson's greatest discomfort would be more than just physical suffering. Can you imagine his regret, the guilt, and the sorrow? That could be more painful than the physical pain. Solomon said in Proverbs 13, 15, The way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard in more ways than people think. In closing, people often think the straight and narrow road is too hard to travel. But the smooth road, which is the broad road of destruction, hey, that smooth road is only for a little while, and then it turns into the roughest road of all. Remember, God... God didn't promise us smooth sailing. He promised us a safe landing. Any discomfort that you might suffer for living a godly life is nothing compared to the discomforts that come from unholy living. And we need to especially think about this when it comes to eternity. You might suffer greatly in this world for righteousness. And Jesus said so. In this world, you will have tribulation. You know, through much tribulation, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. So that's a given. That's one of those promises we don't underline, that we don't like to think about. But we need to think about it when it comes to eternity. You might even be martyred for your holy behavior. But again, that's nothing compared to the eternal suffering of the wicked for all eternity. Darkness, outer darkness, and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful. Father, it's all wonderful. We just thank you for the wonderful word, Lord, and the things that you teach us, the things that your word shows us, God. And again, may we glean from the scriptures, God, those wonderful truths, those living examples, Lord. And Father, we see how easy it is to be lulled to sleep as Samson was in Delilah's lap, lulled to sleep, caught off guard. He destroyed himself. He had nobody to blame because he didn't listen to God's word to him. He didn't obey. And therefore, he suffered the consequences. So, Father, may we learn to obey, learn to follow, God's lead and and to follow him never deviating to the left or to the right 
but looking straight ahead, pressing towards the mark, the high calling of the Lord. And we'll follow him right into the kingdom. Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.